Welcome to State House. Today's guest is Dennis Burrell. Dennis has been the longtime executive director of the Coalition of Texans with Disabilities. The coalition is one of those organizations that uh, doesn't get funded a lot, but they do a lot of great work for uh, the community, the dis disabled community in, in Texas, a lot. Uh, Dennis has uh, been appointed by Governor Perry to the State Independent Living Council and by the Health and Human Services Commission Executive Commissioner to the Promoting the Independence Advisory Council, the State Medicaid Managed Care Advisory Council, and the Drug Utilization Review Board. Uh, he has spent over 40 years as a senior manager of nonprofit organizations. Uh, one of my dearest friends and also just one of the best people you could ever work with. Uh, today, we're going to explore how public policy affects the disabled community disproportionately. And it's often because it neglects to include the community in its development. One of the things that you'll notice from our conversation is, although Dennis is one of my uh, closest friends, uh, we do differ on views, and so we had a nice little spar, but it's the kind of dialogue that we should have when it comes to politics. So I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to State House, Dennis Morrell, Executive Director for the Coalition of Texas with Disabilities. Dennis, I've known you for, gosh, uh, how long? I mean, since when? 21 like, years, I think. I'm, I'm like saying that. 21. It's got to be at least, I was going to say at least 20. Yeah. And we've been yeah. working together for on issues, mostly healthcare issues um, right. over the years. I think one of the most, uh, and, I, and I was having this conversation with, uh, actually a Navy SEAL that was on the program talking about PTSD and some, some other issues that we were, we were talking about um, with regard to um, really a, a disability that's, 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 you can't see. Right. right. You know, and uh, his, he's putting together a crew to do another crazy project like you did. Okay. <laughs> so, and I think really one of the things that, that I'm really most proud of is being involved in the organization in when in the CTD, when um, y'all took, you know, 15, right? 15 disabled Texans to base camp of Mount Everest. And then Gary Guller, who has one arm that because he lost an arm in a climbing accident right. actually summited right. and that's his picture on the wall out there yeah. uh, with yeah. his Sherpa. And that's the prayer flag that he had with him. And he brought that back and gave that to me and yeah. I got the, it, you know, that was uh 2006, I think. 2003. 2003, which, May 2003. Two, wow. Yeah, 2003, which marked 50 years after the first summit of Mount Everest. And do you know, Frank, oh, wow. that both those events made world mountaineering history the largest group of people with disabilities. It's amazing. To make it to base camp. And if, if your listeners don't know what that means, think of the highest peak in the Rocky Mountains and go 2,000 feet above that. That's right. And then you get to base camp. And then Gary became the first person with an arm amputation to summit Mount Everest, which was thought to be impossible. If you, if you listen to his description of when he is 
having to, I forget what they call the, the sort of like a knife's edge. And he only has one arm to hold on to. And right. so if he falls, he doesn't really have, you know, the ability to grab anything. And talking about the terror involved in going, it, it, it just made my stomach drop, but there's, so the, so the film that was done, the documentary that was done is amazing. And, um, I'm sure it's still out there. Does it, it, what's what's it called again? It's called, uh, team Everest, a Himalayan journey. And it's still out there. It's a full length documentary. We had a filmmaker, Andy Cochran, go along on the expedition and, and document and create a full length documentary that has been broadcast nationally broadcast numerous times. I believe it's still available on YouTube or, uh, Amazon. To watch. Everybody should it's watch amazing. it. It's an amazing. And I think what, uh, you know, it's, it's, you hear about things like, you know, taking 15 disabled Texans to base count of Mount Everest. It almost got just kind of just goes in and, you know, you almost don't, but you have to watch the film to understand what it took people with disabilities to, to travel, you know, to hike all of that way to base camp. I mean, it, it, it was an, an amazing thing. And I think one of the things that was amazing to me too, is that you had people with, in wheelchairs. Yes. And five, five people in wheelchairs. Five people in wheelchairs. Yeah. And um, they couldn't, they tried to put, uh, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I, I remember they tried to put them on their backs, but they couldn't, they, you know, so to carry them over really tough terrain area, but then they decided it was just easier just to strap the whole wheelchair with, yeah, you know, with uh, the climber yeah. on their back, the Sherpa, and just, yeah, and, and just with, hike them in. <laughs> if you if you think about this, these these the Sherpa are phenomenal, of course, mm-hmm. and uh, they basically have a forehead strap that was taking all the this, this weight and and climbing up in the, the Himalayan trails. It was a phenomenal achievement. No one ever thought we'd do it. No. I think it, you know, it's supposed to. You know, tried to raise money. You tried to help me raise money for yeah, it. Well, and yeah. people would say, <laughs> yeah, I know. they just, they laughed like, you're not going to do that, man. I should say at the time, the coalition of Texans with disabilities had three staff people and, uh, no money, they, they but you know, <laughs> and of course, why did we do that to show that it can be done? Yeah. And to show that, you know, I can take those 15 people and I could put them you know, down on Congress Avenue or something, and they'd be talking about issues, for example. Not many people would pay attention. But when they were talking about those issues from Everest Base Camp, the world was paying attention. Yeah. And it was a, it was a ph- phenomenal achievement. Frankly, if I'd have known how dangerous it was, I wouldn't have risked all of <laughs> Well, that's the way those things always are, right? <laughs> Ask for forgiveness later. <laughs> well, you put, t- you put CTD on the map. Because at the time, like you said, you're a very small organization and your commitment has been incredible. I mean, you know, you do this every year. You go through the same thing everybody does uh, to try and get your issues dealt with at, at the Capitol. But you don't have you don't have a big pack. No pack. Uh, and you don't have uh, a bank of. Uh, yeah. No packs. That's no what packs. I, that's actually what I meant to say. You have no pack. Um uh, you don't have uh, a bank of lobbyists other than people that are, you know, help you like myself and, and others who um, will we'll try to do what we can um, to, to help. And but it's just uh, elbow grease, you being at the Capitol every day and working and, you know, trying to make 
you know, progress for the for the coalition. It's 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 an amazing group, and you, you fast forward twenty years, right. and you're and it's just a different world. You know, um, it's still just as hard to get anything done. <laughs> so I want to let you know it's just as hard for me to get anything done too. So, but um, uh, you guys work with with very little resources, and um, you know when people can donate to CTD. It, it really does. Every dollar goes into just trying to, you know, keep, you know, pay your rent and have a couple of interns and, you know, just do the things you need to do and keep you on board so you can go to the Capitol every day. <laughs> <laughs> and so you can buy new shoes because you wear so much of your shoe leather out. So, oh, oh uh, absolutely true. Well, you know, uh, Frank, the disability community in Texas is a big community. You know, and uh, talk about that a little bit. I wanted, I was just going to, that was my next question is tell, uh, give me an idea and give our listeners and, and viewers an idea of the disability community as, as it relates to all the tech, Texas population. Sure. Sure. Um, I, I generally, you know, an exact number is not really available, but we, but we have a pretty good sense. It's around four and a half million people. That's a very substantial part oh, of the population. Bigger. And our organization is a cross-disability organization. That means we deal with all kinds of disabilities, all kinds of chronic illnesses, all kinds of age groups. There are many groups that focus on a single issue or single condition, the American Council for the Blind of Texas, the Epilepsy Foundation, uh, the Texas Paralyzed Veterans, and, and many others. And th those are all linked in through us. And, they, and we kind of are the... Like we like to think we're the closers in the capital, but we don't do it alone. You know, we do try to energize the people out there to contact their their state reps and state senators. And yes, we do have um, friends in the in the lobbying and consulting arena who uh, do stuff for us. And uh, we've never paid any of them. You know, we've never paid any of them. And part of that is it's not just the humanitarian benefits that people want to make a better world for individuals they perceived as, as disadvantaged, but they also understand good public policy. For example, we do a lot of healthcare stuff together, a lot of public health. People with disabilities are the lowest income demographic group in our society. That means they're overrepresented in public health. We get constant questions. How are we going to control the cost of public health? You know how? Keep the people healthy who are in the program. It sounds easy. Sounds simple. It is. Yet we have to fight that battle all the time. And there are, as our, friend, our friends in the lobby and consulting world are often maybe representing other interests or some of their clients who say, yeah, maybe we should have access to medicines. Maybe we should have more access to medical cannabis. Maybe we should have more access to com community-based services. You know, if we're going to support the health needs of this population and we're going to do it, State's not going to back away from it. This country's not going to back away from it. Frankly, we're already among one of the least providers of public health programs in the entire developed world. We're not going to get worse. So if we're going to deal in this world, what do we got to do? Let's keep people healthy. It's not that hard. Yet those are the battles we have to fight all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's unfortunate because... Um, you know, there are, uh, you know, you, you do have a lot of partners out there in the sense that there's, a, a you know, the some of the uh, medicines and some of the services and all those things, all those 
pieces of the healthcare um, world are do have representatives and 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 hopefully a lot of times that you align but i know there's there's a lot of issues y'all have to go it alone right and um those are the hard ones you know if it has to do with the and and you know i was in the pharmaceutical industry and you know and then i represented a lot of pharmaceutical companies so i was you know always trying to figure out a way that we could help and um the industry took a you know took a turn um at one point where uh they were you know, looking to whether or not it was for the right reasons or not, they were looking for a way to try to get more of medicines to, to people that couldn't afford it. Right. So they had some programs that came out. Where still you can, do. And they still do. And it's, it's a pretty, it's a significant program and a significant help. Um, I don't know if that's true for every other, in, every other industry in, in the healthcare arena, mm-hmm. but there's issues that you have to take on that don't have any, partners. And that's, that's true. <laughs> to talk about that a little bit. Cause that's really, that's where the rubber meets the road. Well, I, you know, I mean, the, the, the classic one in recent times is medical cannabis. I mean, this really was the disability community that there, there would be no medical cannabis program in Texas without the disability community, yeah. because that was thought to be a lost cause to try and advocate from that. And that was not that long ago, no. maybe 10 years ago was a lost cause. Yeah. And even as we started doing it, and pushing it. And why did we do it? Because our members were saying they wanted it. Because they, like, they liked the benefits they were getting from medical cannabis and they wanted it to be a controlled, regulated environment. They didn't want to have to break the law anywhere. And I can't name names on some particular organizations, but some groups in our society that are highly respected, highly respected, won't admit that they were out procuring cannabis for their significant injuries. Yeah. Um, so how do we do this? You know, well, what we did is we did the face of the issue and got people, people with seizures, disorders, people with spinal cord injuries, other kinds of folks down there. And, you know, ultimately our, our, our golden card that we play, there's no money in it for us. See, you mentioned you were a, in the pharmaceutical and just representing them. How many times to say, yeah, Frank, you're just doing this so you can make more money for your client. And, you know, whether it's the managed care organizations, the pharmaceutical companies, anybody else. When we were starting out in medical cannabis, there wasn't anybody. No. It was just, it was just the consumers wanting a need filled. And over time, we've been able to pop that up just a little bit each time and uh, get a, a little more. And I'll tell you... I'll tell you, the legislator ma- legislature made a critical error in 2021 that they didn't fix in 2023 that is going to harm that, that harms the ability to, to get that. It's actually directing people away from a regulated, controlled medical cannabis industry to an unregulated, uncontrolled hemp industry. Yeah. They fail to... Agree. They, they fail to distinguish between the two you pay for regulation and control in, regu- in, in regulated cannabis, medical cannabis. You don't in the hemp world. So it was cheaper, easier to get, and people fled the regulated industry, which is what we want. This is a medicine. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we're looking to come back with that and, and, and make that correct. It shouldn't be that hard, but it is. You know, uh, it's... Uh 
it's a it's a tough issue. <clears throat> yeah. um, I was very surprised to find out. I I um I came in kind of uh, late into that into this issue. You know, I think I came in in twenty twenty. 2021 or 2019, let's see, 2021 yeah, is when I first even got involved, uh, when I was asked to, to get involved in it. And um, I was surprised there was even a uh, a program that had been mm-hmm. passed by a Republican legislature. But I was really happy to know that. And, you know, when you start to dig into, you know, what this program really means to those patients, that's 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 when you start to understand that this is not you have to separate out the whole recreational BS that's going on out in the rest of the world and focus in on the medical aspect because, and and we had to make a very significant working with you guys, Mm -hmm. a very significant stance that we were against um, recreational, that we would, we wouldn't support it. We were against it. We only wanted a regulated system because what's happening and, and I've had this same conversation with uh, with the veteran community because the program hasn't grown the way that it, that it could. It keeps getting pushed back and pushed back. You know, those people who need that that medicine end up going to the illicit market, or they go to this unregulated um, hemp market. Which, and when I say unregulated, I don't think people realize what Delta Eight is, which is what everybody you know you know they go after. Oh, I can get it anywhere. I can get it at the grocery store, not the grocery store, but the convenience store, and it's easy to get. And I have no idea what's in it. And um, I I actually got a. Uh, I was talking with uh, my dad the other day, and he told me that a, <laughs> a friend of theirs had sleeping some sleeping issues, and so. He'd been using, um, you know, the, 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 the gummies and, um, and actually it had helped. I guess they decided one day they were going to try the Delta 8. And he took it and for uh, 24 hours, he, he, he basically, he, he was having trouble He's speaking. He couldn't get, you know, he, he didn't have the full movement, uh, full ability to, you know, move his arms and legs and um, really scared him. And um, I said, well, you don't know what's in it. We don't, you know, they, they concentrate, you know, things into this Delta eight and then people go out and take it, but there's no regulation on it. So, so you don't know what you're getting. And we've been hammering that with, you know, the the legislature to say, just, you know, upgrade and open up this regulated uh, uh, program, get enough providers. You, you can put, all kinds of uh, barriers in there to keep anybody who's not a patient from getting it. It only goes through a doctor's prescription. There's, there, you know, all of that is regulated through the Department of Public Safety, which is for, for the program that's in there right now, they're doing a, as good a job, I think, as they could do. They're, and, and they're very, actually, they're really good to work with. Mm-hmm. I'm glad it's there and it's not over at the Health and Human <laughs> Services Commission. Because <laughs> uh, you, know, you and I both have those experiences. But, um, yeah, I, I, and, and that's, that's been, uh, out of all the fights that I've had and, and, and issues I've worked on, this one ranks up there it's, as one of the toughest to get across, you know, the importance of it. Yeah, absolutely true. And, and what, you, what you didn't touch on is the other thing that they failed to do in 2021 was include pain 
as a uh, as 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 a diagnosis that would mm-hmm. qualify for medical cannabis, and that's not the illicit market so much, or or hemp. That's actually things like opioids and stuff, which are incredibly yeah. destructive, not not only to the people who take them, but the society as a whole. So, you know, that's a great. I, I think a medical cannabis is a great example of an issue that is humanitarian, but has many aspects of good public policy to it. Yeah. And on its own merits, it should be done. And I, you know, I salute your efforts doing that. And I, I know we'll be back next next session trying to make that happen. But there's a lot of good things we can do out there. You know, um, one of our major issues for many years is uh, many people with disabilities have to have somebody come to their home, help them with some tasks of daily living. Yeah, that's it. that's the lowest paid healthcare job in in Texas. In fact, it's significantly lower paid than most fast food jobs. I mean, like a lot. And we got a, a nice bump this year, but after that bump, the base wage is still $10.60 an hour, which you can go anywhere within a few miles radius of here and see, yeah. you know, 18 and $20 an hour start to start. Yeah. And with uh, inflation, that's not, that little bump isn't going to help no, you. No, it's not. It's not. Without that, this goes back to my initial statement, without that, you have a person with a permanent disability, a chronic illness, maybe both, and they're assessed that they need this help and they can stay in their own home, live independently, stay as healthy as possible. Cheapest healthcare program ever. And yet we're going to cut the legs out by not, not providing a workforce to the low pay. And then what happens then? Those individuals end up in emergency rooms, hospitals, nursing homes. The most expensive kind of health care exactly, you can get. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I remember when they were having this argument about Medicaid and if by not funding Medicaid um, appropriate, at the appropriate amount, you know, those, those patients end up in the emergency room and it took, gosh, I don't know how many years, um, a long time uh, before they finally, and, and, and you know, I, I don't, I haven't worked on the Medicaid issue in a, in, a, in a while, so I don't know where it is in the level of funding. It's better than it was, but I know that it can, they can always do better. But I think it was that argument that finally got them and said, oh, yeah, I guess so. We're spending all this money on emergency rooms, and the emergency rooms can't even take care of all the people that are in there because they're, they're in there for a cold. And so all the people with real, true, emergent issues aren't able to get services. And so they finally started to do more, you know, and I know you, the, the disability community is, is, is probably, you know, very reliant upon the you know, Medicaid services. So it sure is. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, first of all, one of the things we fight against is there's, there's always some people down there in the Capitol are going to stand up and say, you know what? Medicaid's a broken system. It's a broken system. We can't put any more money. Let me tell you, Frank. Medicaid provides health coverage to 5 million Texans, 5 million, 4 million are children living in poverty, 4 million. Okay. Now, is it our interest to provide health coverage to, to kids in this state and they're living in poverty? It sure as hell is. That's our, they're going to grow up and let's, let's have them grow up healthy. The remaining million or so are older adults and adults with disabilities and a few pregnant women, all of whom also live in poverty. Okay. Okay. So it, it's creates Medicaid probably creates more than a million jobs in Texas. 
Okay, so it creates jobs. It provides health care, mostly to children. It's a children's program in Texas. And so it's good for our families, good for our communities, good for our state. And you know what? Texas only pays 40 cents on the dollar. The federal government picks up the other 60 cents. What's not to, why are we looking there to avoid funding? That should be, that should be a no-brainer. We shouldn't be in the bottom two or three states in the nation when it comes to Medicaid. Yeah. Yet we consistently are. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it always, it always, is, it, it falls into the category of entitlements and, and, and it just makes a certain group of the political class, you know, feel like they have to, they have to get rid of it because it's money being spent. That's, that's not useful and it could be spent somewhere else. Or the, or, you know, there's just all kind of crazy arguments, but the, the bottom line is, is you look at where are these, where is this population having to go and get their, their healthcare? Right. I mean, they, they're going to have to get the healthcare. I mean, they live, they're citizens of the United States and they, right. they need to get healthcare if they're poor and they can't go and they, they don't have insurance. Um, and you know, what are they going to do? They're going to show up in the hospital the hospitals have to take them Correct. or the emergency room has to take them. So, uh, you know, the, I don't understand why that calculation can't be made. The, the other thing that bothers me a lot too, and, and, you know, you and I've had this conversation over the years, but it seems like a lot of times it's a, it's a lot of mismanagement by the organization responsible for Medicaid and that's the Health and Human Services Commission. And for, for I, all I can, the only thing I can, um, I, I, I can uh, account that to is they're just so big. They don't, they, there's no way for them to manage these programs appropriately. And, and you and I have been around long enough that, they've taken health and human services commission and broken them up into little pieces and put them back together, broken them up and put them back together. <laughs> so many times trying to figure out the best way to make that work. They haven't figured it out. No. And it's still, it's, it's, it's a, it's a broken organization and it's, it's overfunded. Well, I, I don't know if I would say overfunded, but it's, it's got a huge budget. And I just don't know if it's managed. I don't think it's managed appropriately because there's enough money there for them to do the right thing. But it's such a big organization. It's very hard to get accountability as to what they're doing. Correct. Yeah, correct. And I, I, I couldn't agree more. I will concede it's a damn hard job. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're running Medicaid, not just Medicaid, but you're running a lot of other health and human services operations instead. It's a very, very difficult job. But what I consistently see is the trend is going away from people who actually understand what it is to live in a public health program, the lived experience in public health, whether it's with a disability or an older adult or a child whose family relies on Medicaid or any of the other programs. And they're getting further and further away uh, stakeholder councils where people would get together, people such as myself and my colleagues who, I mean, our members are the people who are living in these programs. We're closer to what's really happening on the ground than any of them by far. And yet those, those, those policy councils, those input mechanisms, those stakeholder arrangements have gone down, not gone up. 
gone down and since there's not as many of them not as many of them and they're less they're they're some the ones that are there are often just a little shows there's not real yeah. input and that's a mistake to me the health and human services commission should above anything be an advocate over those they are charged with serving not be an advocate for a you know a politician in the capital saying we need to cut money no you ought to tell them Okay, you want to do that? Well, here's the result. Be honest for it with them. Yeah. Not go in there and say, oh, yeah, we'll just do whatever you want. No. Well, you that, have to I make mean, your case. Exactly. And I think the, that's the accountability that I don't see is, is okay, uh, everybody wants to spend less money. Understood. But really it's about spending, you know, taxpayer money appropriately. So if you if if you are doing what you're supposed to be doing, you should be able to show the result of that money and be able to say, look, by doing this and taking care of these people, we don't end up with this over here in emergency care or or wherever they have to get care. And you can see the delta between the two and how we're actually saving money in the long run and by by providing this service over here. It's not that difficult to understand and it's not and it's not a republican or democrat issue no it has nothing to do with that it's it's uh it's it's actually uh being a good steward of taxpayer money and and so you know and you said a minute ago it's a hard job you know maybe i've been around this too long (laughs) i'm getting old and grouchy (laughs) but (laughs) you know um i i do hear that a lot and i understand and i do know it is it is a it is a hard job and, and, um, but you know, the health human services commission has all the ability, all the money, you know, to, to bring in the right talent, to train them up appropriately, to handle those jobs. You don't have to take that job over it, over there. I mean, just do it right. And don't, don't mm-hmm. turn into the, mm-hmm. you know, to, uh, a, a bureaucrat that just wants to clock in and clock out. And I get I get angry about it because I feel like I run into and I'm not picking on HHSC. I mean, I I I just they just are who we're talking about. But it's just in general, you know, if you're going to be taking a, a job working to to help the public, the Texans, then you know it's not a clock in clock out job. And yeah. if if you're there for that reason, then you shouldn't be there. You know, sorry. Uh, you know, why are you taking a salary so that you can just clock in and clock out. Let's, you know, there's go, go to a fast food place or go to someplace else and make money because you're hurting people when you do that at an agency, any agency. And, um, that's a broader issue that, that, uh, affects us in many, many ways, but you know, it is something that, you know, I hear it from both Republicans and Democrats. It's the same problem. You know, it's, you know, these big agencies, when they get so big, uh, they're, they're just unwieldy. And I, I, I want to say some some positive words about Department of Public Safety because I've never, until the cannabis issue, um, had to work with with DPS. Matter of fact, I wanted to stay as far away from DPS <laughs> as possible my whole life. But I got to tell you, it is it is it's, it's small compared to these big agencies, and there's only a few people that are working like day and night trying to run these programs. And they're committed. 
I mean, they may not agree with it. They may not like that they have that issue. It's a tough issue, you know, but I've, I've actually had a very good experience you know, dealing with, uh, you know, all of the, the folks over at DPS on, um, on this issue. They're trying their best and it's real tough because obviously they can't do anything unless the legislature tells them to do it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I get that. And I don't know if most people don't probably understand that they can't just go out and do whatever they want. Um, so that's why you and I work so hard to get the legislature to help give them the authority to do the things they need to do. Yeah. Yeah, we do. But I, I also feel like you, that if you're going to take these jobs and, and take these massively important programs for a state, you know, as we often say, what if this were an independent country, it'd have the, what, eighth or ninth biggest economy in the world. Yeah. Right. And HHSC is, of course, the largest state agency uh, in the country, I believe. I think it is. States. Yeah. Um, but they should be like, they should be more proactive. They should make those, they should make those, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to provide information to decision makers, provide it, you know, and instead of not doing that. Yeah. They know, you know, as you say, the comparison, well, if we do this, here are our outcomes going to be. And if those outcomes are in the emergency room, which where we, by the way, pay 100% of the cost, not 40 cents, not 40%, you know, they should know that. And then, so you have people that are making decisions in a five-month legislative session that are very complicated, extremely complicated, along with culture wars and stuff going on sure. too, that it's, it makes it very, very difficult. To me, it makes it more and more important for the people in the agencies, no matter which one, to take an active role and at least providing independent analysis, you know, something will show this is what's going to happen. This is what's not going to happen. This would be the benefits. Yeah. And figure it out. Well, to your it's point, not rocket science, frankly. No, no. And to your point, you know, the policy groups that are set up, I mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. sort of the oversight, uh, you know, mm-hmm. of the, you know, the consumer of that particular service or, or, or and, and it, that helps them, it should be helping them to understand what's needed by the public, what's needed by the legislature, you know, what kind of changes need to be made. That's the best way to know is the people that are actually consuming that service. And to your point that those are becoming less and less effective or they just aren't paying attention to, you know, the Mm -hmm. the recommendations being made by these organizations, uh, by these policy groups. Um, Yeah, that's, that's, you know, that's when you start to get into the sort of silo of of the bureaucracy and and it's all internal. It's just an echo chamber and you're not, you know, nobody ever really knows what's going on. And, and you're not a consumer. If you're there working, typically you're probably not one of the consumers of that. You've got a retirement plan and all those kind of things that, that, that the, the consumers of, the, of of things like Medicaid or the cannabis program, cannabis program, I mean, they, that they, they don't have generally, but, um, yeah, so it's a, it's a, you know, one of, one of the things I think that that our listeners and and viewers probably don't realize is just how difficult, you know, getting something from the legislative process to the agency for rulemaking and then actually implementation. These things take forever. Yes, and it's it is it's just brutal. So by the time you've passed the you know, piece of legislation that authorizes or you put something into the appropriation bill that funds a something, then it goes to the agency and the agency then makes rules to implement it. And then the implementation, 
you know, things, it could be two years or, or more or more or more. And things have changed since then. So you're, 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 it's kind of like the way they build highways, you know, they add a lane and by the time it's done, <laughs> they need two more lanes. Thanks for joining us on this episode of State House. You can find this podcast anywhere you find your podcast today. If you like our program and you want to see more, please subscribe, like it, share it with others. If you've got a comment, leave us a comment. Anything that makes us better, we appreciate. And we really appreciate, if you like it, to give us a five-star review. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.